From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next Producers Picks, highlights of conversations heard on our previous shows. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Asian American and former president of the Chinese Club of Western New York, Yan Hong Baranski, founder of Conscious Environment Creation and Say What podcast, Ryan Howes. And we'll hear from civil rights attorney with the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo, Nicholas Ramirez. First off, during Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I had a conversation with Yan Hong Baranski, an Asian American member of the Buffalo community who served as president of the Chinese Club of Western New York. While president of the group, Yan Hong was honored with a proclamation for her work to dispel racial bias against Asian Americans in Western New York. But now you are a Buffalonian. You've been living here now for how long again? So since uh, 1917. So okay. August 1st, we moved here to Buffalo. Now you're a teacher, but before you were also, and still a member of the Chinese Club of Western New York. Yes. You were president at one point. Yes, so I, I'm the, the former president of the uh, Chinese Club of Western New York, mm-hmm. and I was president since uh, 19, uh, tw- uh, 2019 to 2021 for two years. Now I'm still in the team, yeah. And the Chinese Club of Western New York doing some great things. Under your leadership, uh, this was back in 2020, right, as we were entering the, 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 the craze of, of, of the pandemic and COVID uh, throughout the United States and, and back in China, the Chinese Club of Western New York donated $50,000 of PPE equipment for, for everyone here in, in Buffalo. Yes. Just to, can you explain, elaborate a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, actually, when I, my husband was working in China, in Beijing, and he came here for Christmas, you know, December 20, uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. And he told me, oh, China's, you know, everybody wearing masks, you know. And I said, oh, not so serious, you know. And here we are so safe. Buffalo has no, <laughs> I mean, you have nobody wearing the mask, you know. He said, really serious. And I said, oh, yeah, I don't if I, I would have told you, I would have told you a story <laughs> had I traveled back in time. Right. We were waiting to, to experience in yes, the next few months. And then, you know, then some, you know, my friends and some Chinese doctor here and uh, in Buffalo, they told me that's really seriously. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we, you know, because, at that time, at the end of uh, January uh, 2020, we have Chinese New Year. Every year we have Chinese New Year celebration. We have like a big performance at UB, Center for the Arts. And uh, you know, we prepare for like half year, every year, and for half year for the performance. There's a big, you know. Yeah, the no, Lunar New Year is yes, a big, yeah, big thing. Yes, big event for us. And then, unfortunately, we, could, you know, we couldn't do that. We have to cancel in the last minute. Mm. You know, so that's, you know, I feel, still feel bad because, you know, the people, you know, my friends, you know, even my daughter, they prepared lots of performance and the, unfortunately we had to, you know, stop Everything that. Stopped. Yes. Yep. And then, you know, I start thinking, you know, because there's no, nowhere to buy the masks in, in, in the U.S. And so then, you know, then I just start to ask the, the community, I said, could, could we donate some money? And the only China has a lots of masks, they are producing lots of masks. I said, let's buy some masks from China and uh, donate to the local uh, doctors, you know, the hospital. Mm-hmm. We think, you know, because at that time, you know, everything shut down, the school shut down, everybody go home, you know, working at home, but the doctors cannot. Doctors, nurse, right. and the people working in the hospital, they have to work. Frontline workers they have to fight were, were with finding, the, finding yes. trouble getting Right, they have to fight with the COVID-19. At that time, there's no vaccine, no mm-hmm. nothing. Even people don't think about what's the, COVID, you know, I have even no, no name for the 
right. for the you know wires. So then I I start to you know arrange this and donation. So then I'm really appreciate you know my community. You know within two months you know we. $50,000. Yes, that's yes. fantastic. Yeah, that's really nice. And also, I contact with a, a Jewish community as well. Amara, my friends, and uh, Deborah, you know, and I said, could you please send the link? And the, for the donation link, you know, to your community, let them to donate. So some Jewish community people donate too. And um, another, my friends, she helped me to, you know, um, you know, to organize and find yes, where to, you know, where to yes. mobilize all this, right, all, these, right. all these masks and, 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 right. and scrubs. So and, I really appreciate my community, you know, within two months, you know, we donate, you know, like $50,000, you know, that's now like at the same time, you know, so whenever we got some money, we got like 1000 2000 and right away I buy, you know, buy masks from China because it takes time, you yes. know, and that time the shipping is really, you know, bad. Well, and, and I remember the craze that everyone's once things started getting a little bit more serious here everyone just started snatching up masks more than the, than what they needed so I it was know. hard to find right right even even as you mentioned our our frontline workers our our, our surgeons our doctors uh, right. they were having difficulties yes it. yes so i remember the first uh we bought you know the first parts of the mask you know we bought from new york city actually mm -hmm. so there's like a uh 1000 mask we donate to the uh buffalo medical group and so for my, you know, one of the Chinese doctor, uh, Dr. Hua, you know, she introduced me to the, the director of the Buffalo Medical Group. And when I went and I took the mask to the office, to the director office, I was surprised because, you know, the director wearing the, he's a gentleman, mm -hmm. he wore the pink mask. Mm. And it's made by the nurse because they use the, like a towel. Oh, so it's there's no mask. And... They are in the hospital. Doctors oh. had no mask. And then he wore the pink and they have the, uh, Seb, oh, he wore the red, mm -hmm. you know, with flowers. Yeah, yeah. Because everything to, from the from the top. You just know, find any, any there's kind no of real mask. mask. I was, I was surprised. I said, okay, handkerchief or anything. Yes, just to cover right, at that time. right. Yep. You know, and even the 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 picture was on the newspaper, and so then, and after that, you know, I left the hospital and I I sit in my car. It was tough. It was really tough because yeah, I cried because. I said, that's really seriously, nobody had masks, even the doctors, you know. So they have to work. So I said, okay, let's ask the communities donate more money to give to the, 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 you know, hospitals, you know. We have to protect them. They are the real hero. They are fighting in the first line, you know, to fight the virus. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can stay at home, but they can't. Right. So I really appreciate my community. And the good thing, you know, we really donate. We, we went to over 20 hospitals and nurse, nurse home, nursing home. And also, I remember once we went to ECMC mm -hmm. hospital in the morning, and we have a reporter came, you know, from Buffalo News, and and she came. And I was surprised, you know, she wore the mask, and I always, like, broken, teared mask, you know. Yeah. And she said, oh, I have two masks. And uh, every, I use one mask for one week. I hand in my basement for, and I use another one for one week. And I change for two, only two masks, for, you know, for each for one, mm -hmm. one week, you know, and then I said, I gave you a bag, you know, like 20 masks. And I said, because you're a reporter, you have to go out right. to interview people and uh, you need to protect yourself. Too. People, people forget that, that life for some were, was still going on. We, uh, the vast majority of us got to stay indoors, work from home, but there were still frontline workers that were 
out there yes. doing important work. It's great that, that you did this. You were you were honored by this. It was yes, the city of Buffalo. Because, yes. So I got the. That's really my honor. But it's a, you know not honor oh, you myself. It. You know. So that's I brought fantastic. here from the major mayor. You know. So Byron Brown. Buff- yes. Yeah, city okay. of Buffalo, County of Erie, State of New York, Executive Proclamation. Yang Hong Na Baranski. This is fantastic. See, uh, so. Yan Hong, I appreciate you bringing that in. I, I, I appreciate yeah. you telling that that part of your story. And also this one. Oh, New York State Assembly Citation, National Federation for Just Community of Western New York Heroes Award. That's amazing. And Yan Hong, um, I want to. I, I we're going to delve into this a little bit more, but I wanted to get also just your your experience as a as an Asian American in Western New York. How would you describe that? Besides, outside of the last. Four, three or four years uh, that were very tumultuous and, and still continue to be for Asian Americans, what would you say is your experience uh, with, with your identity, with your culture here in, in Buffalo? Yeah, I'm so proud. I'm a Chinese. I'm from China. I'm Asia. You know, I think everybody's different in like your... I'm, I'm a Cuban-American from Miami, Florida. Yes, you see, you know, I think, you know, because U.S., United States, because why this kind is so great? Because we the people from different countries. Mm-hmm. So we put, you know, different culture together. Let's make the this country more colorful. So that's the, I love culture. I love, I love different cultures because like the person, if we look all the same, it's so boring, right? right? Because we look different, have different color, have different face and different, you know, it's so different, different culture, different language. You can learn mm-hmm. lots of things. The food, don't forget yeah, the food. Yeah, the food. <laughs> yes, yes. I like only not, not only the Chinese food, you know, all kinds of food. I love it. So, yes, yeah, so that's why, you know, United States, because that's why this country is so great, because the people are different. So made this country more stronger. And as far as specifically, though, in Western New York, how would you quantify the Chinese population out here, or the Asian American population? Um, we think you know that Buffalo they told us like uh, over like uh, ten thousand. Okay. But uh, you know, but you know, I think including the UB students, UB has like three thousand over three thousand oh, wow. US. You know, I mean Chinese students. Is there students. a particular reason? And Is there UB a is a big. Or? Yeah, they have lots of program. You know, lots of Chinese students come here. You know, every year they have like over five hundred new students. You know, coming from China to study at UB, and I think other schools, but at UB is most. You mentioned everything that took place after after the, the start and, and in the midst of COVID. Unfortunately, in this country, in, in general, na- nationally, because of, of the previous administrations and, and some of the, the rhetoric and, and, and tone that, that they displayed, and, and with COVID and the, the blame that, that, that the Chinese nation is, is receiving for the spread of that, current geopolitical issues with, with China, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I don't think it's, a, it's hyperbole to say that there's been a rise in Asian American hatred here in the United States. Are you seeing that here in Western New York? If so, are, is, it, is it rising? You know, for me, I think Buffalo is a very nice city. People so kindly, so lovely, so I don't feel that, you know, way. So maybe others, you know, like a big city, you know, let's happen. Mm-hmm. But the Buffalo, I don't feel. I'll be honest. Well, it's good to hear that because <laughs> it, it, it. I don't want to. I don't want to deal in hyperbole, but it's just it, and not so much here in New York City. You hear of mm-hmm. inc- yes. incidences, right? But Buffalo, no. So then you know, you know, people complain about that. I say, okay, depends on where do you live, mm-hmm. you know. But it's happened in New York City, but not in Buffalo. You know, I don't feel that way, so I should not 
complain about that, right. no. So then I really feel Buffalo is really safe place and uh, people so kind, so nice, so friendly. So that's a very good place to live and raise the kids. Yes, that's why that's why I'm here as well. <laughs> Yeah, so then I start to teach. I I love it, you know, because back in chi to China, you know, what my daughter was, you know, in the internet school, I was teaching English for the mm -hmm. Chinese parents at school. So they have our strong PTA. So then, you know, I love to teach. And as I went out and I start to teach from fifth grade to eighth grade. Teaching was a calling for you early on, or did did you say why not? Let's let's give it a whirl. Yeah, yeah just why not? You know, so that's, <laughs> yeah. And so as a, as a teacher, as, a, as someone who also in your role in the Chinese club of Western New York, you're an ambassador. You're, you're bringing your, your heritage to, to another part of the world. Any, anything you can share of your culture that you love to? Yes. Yeah, what's the, I what's share, your favorite? Yeah. Then, you know, like today, I... The candy. The, Definitely the candy, candy. And also we made the dumplings. Jiaozi, we call jiaozi dumplings. Jiaozi, oh. yes. Have you had jiaozi before? Yes, 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 dumplings, yes. yes. So then every year the school, you know, we have the biggest uh, uh, fundraising, we call the Dear to Dream for the Sambandi school. And so then every year they say, okay, let's set up one of, you know, like I gave like uh, the making dumplings for that, you know, so so then. Which is not easy. Dumplings <laughs> yes. is not easy to so make. So while the parents and the God, you know, win the, you know, and so then the, auction you know so then uh so then i choose the first they have a few you know four four kids in our school so now i said i choose the oldest one oldest daughter she's in the first grade i, I think first grade is, you know older so they can mm -hmm. make so then today i brought like the the dumpling skin and the last night i made a, like a filling you know like a ground pork with a uh, chance cabbage and some onion together mixed together i put oh, some yum. soy sauce and some ingredients you know for the dumplings and then i brought to the school and the, the kids love it the first time you know i said how many kids you know how many of you had a dumpling before mm -hmm. i said yes i me me <laughs> they really love dumplings but they never made dumplings at you know before They're not easy. you have to pinch and fold and yes and right i show them how to do it they love it and i brought my hot pot oh, <laughs> and you steam them in, yes in the, that's wow. like an electricity hot pot so then i you know i boil the water mm -hmm. and i put this in my hot pot it's two sides because then we can eat like one side spicy one side not spicy i explained to them what's the hot pot then we use the hot pot you know and then boil the dumplings they love it so then they make the different shape of the dumplings and then they ate they said oh so so delicious we're almost towards the end of our interview but i wanted to ask uh as president of the chinese club of western new york uh you received the national federation for just communities award in in 2021 correct yes. right. um can you talk about the work that you did to to overcome racism bias and and discrimination in in the area yeah i think the because our community is so grateful, you know, we raised money for donate mask, you know, and so I was the president, you know, so then, um, but I, for me, not only me, you know, I think I, you know, this, our community did this, our jobs, you know, the people donate so much money, we could, you know, buy the mask to, you know, from China to donate uh, to the local hospitals, you know. So as Asian American, as a Chinese, you know, uh, American, so I'm really proud of myself. And I think, you know, you know, because at that time, people talking about like uh, Wuhan virus, mm -hmm. you know, we don't uh, agree for that, you know. And I, we think, you know, we are, we are living here, we are in Buffalo, we belong to the U.S., we belong to Buffalo, we are local here, doesn't matter where are you from, we are Buffalonian, 
right? So then, you know, we should love the country, you know, we should love the city, and it's a part of our life because we are living here. That's why we have to protect ourselves. So then that's why our community, you know, donate the money and we buy, you know, the mask and donate the mask to the local. And so we are we are not afraid to say, oh, because you're, you're Chinese, the wire from China, I totally don't agree. And that matter, I'm from China or not, but I'm now I'm living in Buffalo. So I belong to Buffalo. So we have to protect ourselves. So that's why we have to stand up to do something. So then we want to show people we are part of the American, we are part of Buffalo. So we have to love each other, help each other. Doesn't matter where I'm from, but we have to really help each other. So then that's what we did. 2020, 2021. So that's why they give me an award. And uh, I'm really grateful for my uh, community. That's all my community credit. You made Buffalo your home. It's not your your native home, but you've made it your home. And, and we're happy that you're a part of our home and, and have helped to, to, to do good within it. So thank you so much for, for all that you did and continue thank doing you. it because you're enriching, I think, those students' lives, teaching them a new language, teaching them a new culture, uh, feeding them new foods that they probably haven't yes, had before. So. I'm so glad. I'm so happy. I can, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for Savannah School. You know, we still continue to teach the Chinese, Chinese language. I'm so happy to share my experience, my cultural, my language. So then people know and the, the students know better about Chinese culture. And I love to learn more other cultures too. We got to get together and, and I'll teach you some I'll teach yes. you some everyday Spanish. You teach, teach me you some everyday make... Mandarin. Yes, and Mandarin. the dumplings. Yes, dumplings. we got, you yes. got to teach. Right. <laughs> <laughs> next up on what's next, producers picks. After his child's Western New York school omitted Black History Month and other DEI initiatives from their teaching plans, Ryan Howes set off to create a curriculum and supplemental history podcast to address this need. This is how Conscious Environment Creation and the Say What podcast were born. I'm here with Ryan Howes. He's the creator of Conscious Environment Creation, uh, along with a, a companion podcast by the name of Say What History. <laughs> yes. Am I, I'm sorry, I went over the top there, but it, but but I'm only doing branding. I'm I'm trying to push the branding you've got, and and when you start each podcast, that, it's yeah, that's it. Um, it's a show about Black history, where we talk about some people that you know, talk about some people that you don't know, and talk about some events so crazy it'll make you say what. <laughs> I love it, Ryan. Welcome to what's next. Thank you for having as, me. As a fellow media professional, you were one point a radio DJ, studied yeah, studied music. And now podcaster, welcome for this home and home, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ryan, uh, you are the creator, the founder of Conscious Environment Creation. Uh, can you give, give me a, a quick overview of what, what, what that is? So what Conscious Environment Creation is, is a uh, like DEI program that kind of morphed into focusing on K through 12 type education. Uh, so kind of gravitated and, and took from a lot of different pieces that I had, a lot of DEI background and structure and things like that. But how do we 
get kids to uh, have a better understanding of what diversity is and have a better understanding of being inclusive to their classmates and things like that, understanding um, inequities and how to correct those things. Mm -hmm. And teaching through American history was a really good way to do it. So that's where kind of say what history came from was this idea of presenting black American history in a way that was easily digestible for K through 12, but also presented it without, uh, without sugarcoating it. Mm-hmm. And, um, in a way that was able to, to have DEI features within it. So that's, showing history with its blemishes and all. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I found, um, was that a lot of history being taught right now or the way that um, certain states, counties, cities, whatever, are trying to reframe history is that black history isn't important or it's something that we shouldn't be focused on or teaching, but black history is American history. Leaving that part out, you leave out a huge part <laughs> of, of of history. And what a it's way... It's intertwined and, and it's un, you can't divorce it from... from exactly. And, and what who a way... Who we are. Probably. Right, exactly. And what a way to show, um, to, to show students exactly what I was saying before, the diversity, equity, and inclusion can be shown through telling these stories of people that they've heard of, people that they haven't heard of, doing things that they're not used to seeing. Everybody knows Martin Luther King Jr. and the guy that did the Peanuts and... and George Washington Carver. Yeah, and Rosa Parks sitting on a, you know, sitting on a bus. Like, those, there's those stories, but it, honestly, it almost feels like people don't even know those stories anymore. But it's, there's so many stories that have happened that are triumphant or... Black history is much more than just enslavement and pain. And it isn't just people doing the same nine inventions that we hear about every single year either. So there's so much more. We, I mean, we're talking about over... If we're talking from 1619, we're talking over uh, over 500 years, 400, 500 years of history that we're talking about. And that's about. just the tip of the iceberg. Right, exactly. I think in your curriculum plan, you have... Um, and I had to look him up because I, I wasn't familiar, but Onesimus. Onesimus, yes. One of the first stories I start with, especially for kids right now, they're, I mean, we're living post-pandemic world. And a lot of these kids are really familiar with, like, what a lockdown is or what masks are or, or you know, what being able to go outside and get sick and get really sick is. So Onesimus came up with a um well introduced to the boston medical community the idea of inoculation which was a primitive or Mm. uh, a little less sophisticated than a vaccine way of treating a virus and the enslaved had been doing that because it was a practice in west africa for centuries at that point so once they realized that smallpox was ravishing the boston area the enslaved were doing what they always did and they weren't getting sick and and it took a preacher one preacher and uh one doctor to actually listen to what onesimus was saying as he was kind of speaking on behalf of the rest of his enslaved people and saying this is how we're doing it this is what we do 
Um, we it's called inoculation. This is how it, this is how it works. And Boston eventually started to adopt inoculation, and their rate of death went from one in forty, or I'm sorry, one in seven down to one in forty. And then eventually, this would lead. It would take about four or five years before they would start to get a vaccine because the the concept of having a small amount of the virus or a weaker version of the virus being introduced to your body, your body creating antibodies, that's the basis of what a vaccine is. Right. So having that be top of mind and conscious, now doctors are working towards how do we do inoculation but make it safer, make it better, and then eventually they come up with a vaccine. The vaccine leads to us not having to talk about smallpox anymore. (laughs) And a lot of people don't realize that that was a group of black enslaved people that taught the medical professionals at the time how to do that or that that was something that was viable they showed them in practice that this is something that's viable so anesimus is probably one of my favorite stories to start off with because when you start to talk about a pandemic the kids know exactly what you're talking about (laughs) they're like little experts at this point (laughs) yeah exactly well it's it goes to show you uh my experience with with uh with the florida school system and their their version of black history uh, oh curriculum uh, and that was what 90s uh, and we'll get to that that <laughs> fun little topic in a little bit but it goes to characterize your, your your curriculum you're dealing with figures that aren't I guess quote unquote commonplace in in the grand curriculum of, of the United States right um, you have a shirt on for those it's an auditory medium but Ryan's got a shirt that has King Du Bois X I can't see. Fred Hampton is the last one. I see. <laughs> Newton and, then, and Hampton. Ah. And so you seem to delve into black history prickly parts and all. Yes. And and that's how history should be, I feel like. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of beautiful, rich history that people kind of ignore. Uh, like even when you're talking about Newton and Hampton, you're talking about the Black Panthers. It's there's this perception of what they were and And my apologies for mischaracterizing it as prickly, but it's just No, no, like no, no, the, no. in the general population when you mention Black Panther movement and and some of the more uh combative parts of of of, of black history People start getting, oh, oh, wait, we're talking Black Panthers. Oh, but you're but there's, but you're 100 percent right because there have been throughout our history, even as recent as the late 80s to right now, we have this perception that has been handed down through curriculums and passed down to us through the school system that these characters were bad people or they they were misguided. Malcolm X had a good idea, but he did it the wrong way. Uh, Fred Hampton had a good idea, but he did it the wrong way. It's always that, but they never talk about the Black Panthers having over 60 social programs that some of them we still use to mm-hmm. this day. The Black Panthers came up with WIC. Um, <laughs> like the Black Panthers came up with SNAP. There's duality and there's there's nuance in every story. And I feel like yeah, I've said, I've said it here a number of times, but we don't do nuance as a country very well. So no, no. It's, it's great that, that you're, you're pushing this curriculum to a broader spectrum of, of Western New York. Now, how did your your calling, what was the calling, what drove you to create Conscious Environment Creation? So we got to travel back a couple of years to when it started kind of appearing in my mind. Um, This is 
I I feel like a lot of people had the same kind of fed up moment, but it was really George Floyd that mm. got me to a point where it wasn't it wasn't necessarily George Floyd. It was the fallout after, after. George yep. Floyd because that's when I started to realize that there's a lot of people that don't see the world the same way I do, that don't see oppression the same way I do, that don't understand those things and they either don't want to or they don't know where to begin to understand those so I started re-educating myself and and learning diving into uh, a lot of literature on you know um, anti-racism literature critical race theory actual critical race theory <laughs> well we could talk <laughs> the about term that that's later around a lot and yes, I feel like yes <laughs> much like much like woke a lot of the people that use it can't define it or, or where it's exactly from. Exactly. And so reading about that, and it really just started with friends of mine just teaching them. Like, they wanted me to, hey, can you, you said something the other day when we were in the car. Can you just write that up? And it started off, Conscious Environment started off as very long, like almost blog posts on Facebook. <laughs> um, and then it... The place more... where all uh, intellectual discourse takes exactly. place nowadays. Then it morphed into to videos online doing short form kind of video things to to express and ex- explain things to people because I felt like I could say it in two minutes faster than I could type it for a half an hour. Um, and then it became more and more formal and then eventually we get to me wanting to explain this through stories of history. So that's where say what history kind of got, kind of got born out of, um, wait, what got born? <laughs> the say what yeah. history. <laughs> it, it got, uh, yeah, it got, it got born out of that because really, it, it's this is a fun story. It was me coming down stairs after reading in my office for for a while and coming down and going to my wife and go, "You'll never believe this." And then I tell her something that I just read that I that even I was like, I didn't know that this had happened in the United States. I didn't know that we did this. I didn't know that this court case existed, whatever. And then my wife was sitting at the tape at the at the dining room table. She's sitting there, and I go, you'll never believe this. And I tell her, and this is probably the 10th day in a row that I had come downstairs and said something like this. And she goes, what? No way. I can't believe that. And I and I was like, yeah, like, that's that's how, that's what I feel like whenever I read this history. And that's where Say What History came from, <laughs> was it was history that, as I was reading it, I was like, well, why, how have I never learned this before? Why didn't I know this? Why aren't we teaching it like this? Sure, it's blemishy or it doesn't make early United States, early America look good at all, but it's what happened. Mm-hmm. So why why don't we teach these things? And and there's a lot of things that overcame. There, I, I think if you understand where we were, you can see where we're going and you can see you you can see the distance that we've made with with things like that. So yeah, it started off in 2020 trying to do like kind of bloggy post things and as I learned I wanted to just share this information more and it developed into a curriculum that could be I wanted to just have like an easy package to to hand a school or hand a teacher 
that um, felt like they they weren't sure where wh- what to do or where to start. Uh, I and that's I don't think it's anybody's fault per se, but I think there are a lot of teachers that get nervous. Um, teachers have been under fire since since yeah. twenty twenty. I think a lot of teachers don't want to rock the boat. They don't, you know, they they. Educators already are are in a tough place where they're not getting paid enough or they're not getting enough respect sometimes that they they freedom to operate. Right. And uh, it's just getting worse. uh, It feels like on a national level and also I hate to say it sometimes in a local sense. Right. Uh, Also, Ryan, uh, I would be remiss not not talking about uh, another big event here in our, in our city of Buffalo, the top May 14th racist shooting. And we had direct relation to Catherine Massey. Is that yeah, correct? Kat, yeah. Kat was, uh, was my cousin. Um, yeah. I, I remember that day because I was at my grandmother's house, uh, and my grandmother was, it was her 90th birthday party. Wow. And, I, we got, we kept getting bits and pieces because I talk about, report on, do stuff with the news, with uh, with my social medias and things mm-hmm. like that. So I'm always kind of a little in tune to what's happening, like in the news. And I saw that there was a shooting in Buffalo that was a big enough deal that it took over the news networks. But I didn't read into what it was. And then... As the night, like, progressed, I kept reading more and more about what was actually happening at the time because because Buffalo wasn't positive what was happening at, at, at the time. First, it was it was a shooting. Then it was it, then it was a mass shooting. Then it was then it like the 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 gunman was racist. He had a manifesto. All of this stuff like appeared yeah, over the day. Through. We we were all here. <laughs> um, but. I was, yeah, I was in, um, talking to my grandmother and how oh, it's going to make me tear up. Uh, she, she just looked at me and I was telling her what was happening and she just sat there. She's looking at me and she just goes, I thought, I thought we fought this. So y'all didn't have to. And I was like, <sighs> I don't know, Grandma. <laughs> I, I I don't know. And she goes, well, you got to do something about it. And then she walked out of the room. And I don't think she meant it like this. Like, I think she was kind of being flippant and mm-hmm. being sarcastic about it. But I took that to heart. And I wanted to do something about it. It just... I just, this is the only way I knew how was to, through education, through teaching people, the, that's, I feel like education is the best way to change the, the next generation. Mm-hmm. Whenever we learn about great catastrophes that have happened throughout history, the first things that happen is they cut off education. They they burn books. They, they change schools. They, they segregate schools. They do all kinds of stuff to get to get the masses not to be able to 
one, have all the same information, and two, join together to push back against whatever the forces that be. And that's where I felt like I got to get to the kids. <laughs> I get- Ryan, thank you for, for, for sharing that that truly personal moment. And I, I wanted to if also give you a moment to, to, to speak on, on the memory of Catherine, anything that, 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 that we need to know about her. I... I, I feel like if you're if you're in in Buffalo on the east side, you know who Catherine Massey is. She was a juggernaut. She just she fought for her community. She helped revitalize the fruit belt, and, and she she was a writer. She she just never stopped challenging things and pushing. And I've taken that to to heart. It was um, it was like the next day that we learned that she had passed in um, in the shooting, and we all knew people that that lived right. over there. We were calling people all night, but we were calling Cat's sister to try to get up. We were calling Cat, and we were calling Cat's sister to try to get a hold of her, and nobody could for for a while. So. And I remember my mother kind of thought the worst a little bit, but she didn't want to say it. And she called me the next morning. She goes, I just got a, got the call back. And, yeah, Cat, Cat was there. So funeral services are, <laughs> are, are, are soon. We'll, we'll, we'll make it there. And, but I think her legacy lives on in new activist groups, different groups mm-hmm. that have taken this kind of like this intellectual take not taking no for an answer kind of way. Like Kat was a wordsmith. Like she didn't like she would make you feel amazing but be correcting you the whole the <laughs> whole time and at the end of it you thanked her yeah and that's just it, it it's it's just a way that 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 she she had about her and and i i think that that's an important thing to to keep with the the new activists or the the new people trying to to change things as as we can we just have to keep pushing and just keep going there'll be people will try to stop us all the time but we have to just keep going for our final highlight we hear from nicholas ramirez with the legal aid bureau of buffalo nicholas is an attorney that specializes in criminal law but aids the public by advocating for and educating individuals in all things pertaining to social justice We broke down a lot of the recent Supreme Court rulings on affirmative action, loan forgiveness, and the First Amendment case of 303 Creative LLC versus Elevens. If you've been listening to the news as of late, there's been just... SCOTUS has been busy. The Supreme Court of the United States has been very busy uh, setting back, wiping clean decades of precedents that we had uh, prior to this past week, and we'll we'll get to them in each in in, in detail or one one way or another. But uh, what was your feeling right off the bat 
after after just it felt like it was one hit after the other. Bam, 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 bam. We had we have the affirmative action ruling. We had the 303 creative versus Alanis, uh freedom of speech First Amendment uh, case, and then we had the loan debt forgiveness ruling as well. What were your thoughts after all those concurrent rulings came by? Uh, so a lot of disappointment. Um, when I went to law school, I actually, uh, dreamed of one day being someone who argued in front of the Supreme Court. Um, I, you know, always tried to give, uh, benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. to opinions I didn't agree with, um, to justices I didn't agree with because I believed a lot of them were acting in good faith and trying to reach the just outcome. Uh, but I think a lot of us who felt that way one L year of law school kind of evolved in our belief. And I think that that hit me particularly hard with some of the cases in the last few years. And th- this term was no exception. I, I can't gloss over the Roe v. Wade decision. Yep. Dobbs. Uh, Dobbs. It just, and even I was speaking with um, a gentleman last week about uh the, the 303 creative case and we were awaiting the, the ruling on that uh, I was I, I said to myself I thought we had been over this one already with the the Colorado cake maker uh, let's let's start with that one because yeah. uh, to my knowledge uh, we had already kind of gone over the, the the right to refuse business based on religious beliefs or free speech grounds uh, this was 303 creative LLC versus Alanis. And it was a six to three in favor of 303. Uh, Christian web designer, Lori Smith from Colorado, refused to do business. Now, I, I want your, your expertise here because, to my knowledge, this was a hypothetical that was, mm-hmm. that was argued here. She refused to do business with LGBTQ plus uh, clientele based on, on her religious beliefs, freedom speech grounds. How, can that You can do that? You can have a fictitious <laughs> um, litigant? Uh, well, kind of addressing that first point, no. Uh, it's called an advisory opinion. Um, and generally in federal courts, you cannot seek an advisory opinion. Um, it, it's it's because the courts have a limited power, um, or at least they're supposed to have a very limited power to determine case and controversies. And I think it's really important to look at the hypothetical here because I think it kind of informs... Uh, a lot of the problems with the decision. So uh, 303 Creative, it did kind of follow up on Masterpiece Cake Shop. Mm-hmm. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, the court didn't decide these the merits, really, of whether or not the you know cake decorator had this right. They really just kind of kicked it back, saying, oh, well, the you know Colorado board made some comments about religion that uh, show, you know, maybe he didn't get a fair hearing. So, you know, do the hearing again, give him a fair hearing. Um a lot of us at the time felt like that was really just the court trying to avoid the hard question because mm-hmm. of a lot, just the circumstance of it. But, you know, we took it for what it was. Uh, 303 Creative, and this is the problem with uh, advisory opinion when you're talking hypotheticals. You don't have any facts to really look at to determine it. Um, so you see this a lot in the opinion where you have Justice Gorsuch um, really you know, talking about this in the broadest terms of, oh, well, it's a message she doesn't agree with. And uh, this is an individual, you know, piece of art and such. Well, we don't know that. We don't know what the process actually is for designing the websites because she's never done it. She's never mm-hmm. designed a wedding website, period. Um, and 
you know, we also see this in Justice Sotomayor's uh, dissent where she's pointing to all the hypotheticals because she's like, we don't we don't have anything to really root right. this in. And basically you, go going. You're, yeah. you're suing the, the law. You're, yeah. you're, you're you're trying to make it or absolve or get rid of the law so as to be able to then claim that you don't have to do business with said parties. More you're trying to make an exception that pretty much anyone can use now because we don't have solid facts. So um, I think it was really demonstrative during the oral argument. Justice Jackson referred to, um, you know, a Santa scene set in the 1950s. Well, could they say a black child can't be in it because, you know, that's not part of their classic vision of, mm -hmm. you know, it's a wonderful life. Um, and, you know, it's like, how do you answer that considering this context? Um, and I think that's the, one of the first problems you see with the decision is all these hypotheticals. There's no solid facts to root this in. It's also demonstrates the a lot of the justices don't seem to have a firm grasp on discrimination law. Mm -hmm. um, because in oral argument, you saw Justice Alito ask, well, would a black Santa be able to refuse to take pictures with a kid dressed in a KKK outfit? Well, wearing a KKK outfit isn't a protected class. It's very right. different from your skin color. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think anyone disputes that. Um, and that's a lot of what you're seeing to justify the decision now is like, well, you know, uh, you, you guys don't have to make cakes for MAGA people. And it's like, well, no, you never had to. Uh, this was purely about a person's, you know, person. Do you think we'll go in that route? I think it's inevitable because they didn't draw a line. They couldn't draw a line for between race and, you know, being gay or being trans. You, there's a reason you can't draw a line because those are all parts of who you are. And that's where we've understood a protected class to come from. So the decision doesn't even try to draw a line there. I think it's because to the justices, and it may seem obvious, like, no, that's that's obviously different. Um, you know, refusing to bake a cake for a black couple or an interracial couple, it's obviously different than try baking a cake for a gay couple or designing a website for a gay couple is different from interracial or black couple. But how? I can't think of an answer to that. I don't think that they could either and i think that's why it's absent in the opinion there's so much to, to delve into here uh, but we have two other monumental cases to the rulings rather uh first let's do the, the 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 fiscal side uh the loan debt forgiveness ruling now it's to my understanding that that president biden's going to try to fight this in one way or another using the 1965 higher learning act but he's got a long road ahead once again uh Thoughts on this one? Um, this is one that really showed bad faith on the justice part, in my opinion, um, because there was no injury here. So they they took this argument from the state that the state had created this independent company to handle learn, student loan servicing, and that company might lose money, which would you know make them unable to pay the state. It's it's all speculation for mm -hmm. one. And two, the company itself said, no, we actually profit from this decision. This company refused to get involved. Um, and especially because I come from the criminal defense side where the police could get an illegal confession from someone else and use it against you. They just can't use it against that person. Right. And now the state can go, go and say, well, we're going to, you know, try to enforce this group's rights and that group's like, what, what rights? I'm good. I'm not in this. Like, right. yo, you... I'm not making. I'm not having this fight. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I, I'm going to get more money from that, this. I don't what? want the smoke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, 
you know, it, the fact that the justices did this really twisty, turny way to find standing in itself bothered me. Um, was it, it? Correct me if I'm wrong. Was this the Supreme Court taking this on uh, themselves, or did it start in a federal circuit? So the Supreme Court doesn't take courts as a an original jurisdiction, um, with very limited, you know, uh, exceptions to that. Usually, they're a court of appeals, um, and this came from a lower court that had, you know enjoined this policy um and it's the the whole thing was just kind of a mess it also included what's called the major questions doctrine where congress is supposed to speak clearly about what it wants yeah i saw that what 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 what, what, can you explain that a little bit in detail yeah so i guess the major questions doctrine means um if it's a question of great political or economic significance Congress has to speak explicitly. So uh, I think in this case, I guess the idea would be if Congress wanted the president to be able to forgive student loans in the sense of COVID, then Congress would pass a law saying that the president can forgive student loans because of COVID. Um, The problem with that is that we pass laws with broad language intentionally to allow, you know, quicker response. Um, Also, okay, maybe you can estimate economic, I guess. I don't I don't really think that's the place for the court, but fine, whatever. But how do you estimate political significance? Because you can make any issue political. I mean, right. years well, ago, who would have seen that? Yeah. Now, in one way or another. Who would have thought that the Electoral College decision would be <laughs> politically controversial? <laughs> uh, so, you know, the whole thing was just this very swishy, washy, and un- indeterminable standards, kind of similar to some of the things that were raised with affirmative action. Um and so that's that that really frustrates me that it's it's very clear that this was just an outcome driven result meant to stop this this administration from doing something. And then there was the other, I guess, uh, double whammy, uh, the affirmative action ruling. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, basically, uh, universities can no longer consider race when accepting new students, or at least not. They're not obligated to do so. Affirmative action had been this 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 piece of legislation back in the 70s i believe that mm-hmm. we, we we got it on the books and then now it no longer is a criteria for uh new uh secondary post-secondary uh school uh, school students but uh this one there's a lot more there was it was it, it, was, it seemed to me from the general criticism i've heard it's very still very much unclear that the schools can still continue to practice looking at race but it's not an obligation well, it's never been an obligation. I, um, I think that's the first thing to clarify. St- s- schools were allowed to do so. And in some states, they actually banned its use, period. They banned use of race, period. Um, those states were especially instructive because once they banned consideration of race, period, they saw a sharp decrease mm-hmm. in you know students of color. Um, and that's not just you know black students. That's Latino students. That's you know, um, Asian students. So it, it was never a mandate. It was always a policy that was used to try and diversify the student body. Just to give some equity where, where it was needed. Uh, well, I mean, that might be one way to phrase it. Um, the courts, you know, have gone through a couple different things that you were allowed to do it for. At one point, you could look to remedying history, but you couldn't look to that anymore. Um, most recently, it's been you can use it to build a diverse student base because that benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's always had this, it never wanted to acknowledge what it was. 
um, you know, we never the court never really wanted it to be acknowledging that people from those groups had been set back by who they were. So, you know, they wanted it to have something else, which was this eventually settled on this diversity of a student body. Um, but now they can't consider them in the holistic approach that they normally take. So normally, and Roberts lays this out even in his opinion, which is why it's so strange to me that he phrases this as uh, completely determinative. But there's basically like five steps to the process that start with like your, you know, your grades and scores and they whittle it down, they whittle it down, they whittle it down. Then they like, okay, we are definitely admitting these students. And then there's like, okay, we got these slots left. And this, this is a whole huge process. So let's say they've got 500 spots left out of, you know, 2000 students and they say, okay, well, the current make, you know, looks like we actually dropped like 3% in African-American students this year from last year. And you've got that, you know, this pool of like, you know, a thousand students that you're like, oh, they're on the fence. So you got 500 slots left. Okay. Well, we dropped an African-American recognizing that there's different conditions that you live with growing up, recognizing that there's different interactions that you have with this country growing up. Mm -hmm. um, let's, you know take a look and maybe, you know, get, add some, add a point to them. Um, it, so it, it was really made so that it wasn't denying people a spot based on their race. It wasn't taking a point away, but it was recognizing that we need a diverse student body for people to be prepared to enter the real world and to try and make the college campus reflective of America. As you mentioned, it, it can be affirmative action was being employed in, in multiple uh, areas. But how would this or how could this ruling affect employers or DEI initiatives? That's been that's been a, a, a term that that everyone's been harping on because one way or another. But how could this go in, into the private sector? I know that American Airlines, uh, Match Group, Google, I think Dell also. They warned in a brief to the Supreme Court that without affirmative action, they're they're going to lose access to to a number of future workers and 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 business leaders, and and they're going to struggle with meeting diversity hires. But do you see some of that potentially? Uh, I definitely do. I, I definitely think that with this kind of ruling, so I've done some discrimination law cases, um, and. What I think we're going to see is any time a company has a commitment to DEI, um, you're going to have grounds for someone who doesn't get a job um, to go in and say, I didn't get it because I'm white. Um, and they have this DEI program, which shows that they favor black and Latino people because the court's stated goal here was that America needs to be colorblind. We can't pay attention to the fact that there's been less opportunities, less access to opportunities um, for, you know, people of color. We we can only think everyone has to have the have had the same, you know, treatment and we don't access. see color. Yeah. But in saying that, you're you're also not looking at the problems yeah. that that people of color. You're not engaging with reality. Yep, yeah. yep. And I mean, that comes from the justices themselves, I think, having not had to engage with those things a lot. You know, they, they get to look at everything in this very abstract position of, you know, they remove the race from it and say, if this person gets it because their skin color is this color, but this person doesn't, then it's automatically racist when you need to include the color. You need to see that 
this black person getting, you know, this recognized as getting this additional point to get into these programs or get into this job, it's because you're recognizing that in general, there's a problem in our systems that they've never accounted for. It, it wasn't just you end slavery and boom, racism's over. You pass the Equal Rights Act, boom, racism's over. Uh, you know, march across the Edmund Street Bridge, boom, racism's over. It doesn't work that way. People are still treated differently and they just have this more subtle way that they do it sometimes. Maybe sometimes I'm not even that subtle, to be honest. Um, and I'll give you an example. I'm, I was in the public defender unit primarily serving east side and west side of Buffalo, which are primarily black and Latino. We had three people of color in that unit. Me, um, an amazing public defender named Mingo, Michael Mingo, uh, who did the Benoit Rights panel with me, and another incredible public defender, uh, Moody, who uh, was with us every step of that way. Uh, I just want to make sure I put some respect on their names because the two of them are both amazing individuals. Proper shout-outs there. Yeah. But there's over, I think, over 20 attorneys in that unit um and in general in the law you know latinos like you and me we're five percent of it black people are five to six percent of it you know that that right there should show you that while there's our a population difference. numbers are drastically different drastically different the composition <laughs> yeah. of our of the makeup of our society our american society is vastly different <laughs> in, in percentage points we thank you for joining us this has been What's Next Producers Picks. We would also like to thank all our guests this week, including Yan Hong Boransky, Ryan Howes, and Nicholas Ramirez. As a reminder, What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and re-airs each weeknight at 9 p.m. Each episode is also available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, and also on demand at WBFO.org. For What's Next, I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. This is the WBFO History Bites, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of September 18th through September 24th. I'm your host, Josh Deckert. On September 19th, 1982, the Buffalo Courier Express published its final issue. The Buffalo Evening News, now known as the Buffalo News, became the only daily newspaper in the city. On September 22nd, 1919, an estimated 7,000 workers at Lackawanna Steel went on strike during the nationwide steel strike. On September 23, 1913, the Allendale Theater officially opened. After some closures and restoration, the theater is now home to the Theater of Youth Company. And on September 24, 1950, forest fires in Canada darkened the skies of Buffalo. Residents described the sun as changing colors due to the smoke. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite, Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. You can learn more at buffalohistory.org.
For WBFO, I'm Josh Deckert.